Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning, good morning to on this Tuesday morning. Uh, Joburg is finally getting some winter. Gear up for that. I will probably get your heart pumping on the discussion we will have today. And uh, from a point of view of the pre-guest discussion, the only topic, obviously, is the rioting and the looting. And I will discuss in the next 10, 15 minutes really the, the view of the IRR and where it's where where it where, where it sees the things being and where it sees things going and what it sees is wrong mostly the latter um there's generally a feeling that the incarceration of Jacob Zuma was used by certain actors to trigger the uh, the violence um we have little doubt, we obviously don't know who they are, but we have very little doubt that uh, that there were people who who st- sort of got the violence going because they wanted to prove this particular point and show political muscle on uh, Zuma's behalf. His, uh, Zuma's children, um, uh, Edward Duduzani and Dudu, are culpable, as is someone like Carl Niehaus and Jimmy Manyi, his Zuelini, sorry, Manyi, who stirred up rhetoric during the days preceding his incarceration, uh, very inflammatory rhetoric. So I would suggest that it might be an idea to start by arresting them and uh, see where that takes them. I'm not, I suspect it's not that difficult to find out who sent the word along and gave the orders for people to start uh, an uprising of, of this sort. Um, but let's start with the, try and start with the people we know um, spoke rhetoric that really was uh, unhelpful, shall we say. The reason I think it, w- it was two things. One, it was instigated by for very political reasons. And then once they instigated, they knew in the circumstances that in the situation we are in currently, it would be a conflagration in the long run. And if you look at where the violence started, it started on the usual area of the N2, of the um, of the uh, highway that leads from Durban to Peter Maritzburg and beyond. Um, we also see that it happened in Alexandra and it was generated in the sort of south side of the of the Johannesburg CBD. Now, both those areas are famous areas for having substantial hostels where particularly Zulu men live while they work up in Johannesburg. So there is very likely to have been an instigation that was both Zuma provoked and, and Zulu uh, orchestrated. However, in the current circumstances, um, and we'll discuss what some of those circumstances are, the they took off and then they got out of control and it doesn't matter for the for the instigators that it got out of control i have no doubt that that is what they wanted to achieve and all they had to do was literally light the fire and off it went um the the reasons that we thought have played into this hi fm your station of choice since 2008 
Welcome back. And we continue our discussion on the, the looting and the violence and looking at the causes and consequences that will attach to them. I'd like to kindly commend our online portal, dailyfriend.co.za, in which the articles by the CEO, Franz Cronier, and our regular columnist, Ivo Fechter, they deal quite pointedly with the issues. And I'll, I'll sort of summarize much of, of what they say, which, 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 which uh, I think will be enlightening in some respects. France holds it essentially there, there are seven causes of, of what, we've, what we're seeing. Um, high levels of economic ex- exclusion, failing schools, unchecked corruption, racial nationalist, nationalist rhetoric from the government, inept and poorly motivated security forces, Security forces that are led by people who actually don't know what they're doing. They're completely under-resourced. And the government, government policies that do not address the problems that we face. And so in other words, they're looking to a socialist uh, policy model when a free market model is the only thing that is like, that would help us get out of a lot of the mess that we're in. When we were chatting about it yesterday amongst us, uh, we, we all agreed that we were not greatly surprised uh, by the, uh, by the uh, conflagration because, and we, on seven occasions we've written or spoken about warning that the threat of violent anarchy was, could, could detonate at any time. And this is in a period of 18 months. I mean, it's really seven times in 18 months. So that's, that gives you an idea of what we could see, and I think a lot of others could see, that the government was paying absolutely uh, no attention to it. Uh, we don't think that they anticipated it, and we think that's extraordinary. We think they should really have uh, have anticipated Particularly with the, with the jailing, that, that, even if that wasn't really the reason, it was certainly used as the spark. And what do you have? You have the Moy River Toll Plaza area, the N2 left exposed, which has been a site of trucks being burned previously. Um, there is complete a lack of intelligence and security planning. Now, this strikes me in an area where properly, uh, in, properly situated intelligence and intelligence agents could have made all the difference, but I don't think we've had anything that resembles intelligence in every sense of the word for a very long time. Um, there are almost at least 10 service delivery protests happening anywhere in the country uh, on any given day outside of this particular set of events. So there's a warning in that. Um, I mean, these, these, the social delivery processes we've estimated have risen by over 300 percent in the past decade. And obviously it's a reflection of things getting worse and worse for people. What lies behind the, pro- the protest? Well, economic exclusion we've mentioned. Um, the failing schools do not give, uh, give kids any chance of, of, of getting jobs. Uh, I, I, in addition to the labor law restrictions that make it difficult to get a job, you've got under, um, undertrained young men, young, sorry, young men and young women. Um, with regard to the nationalist rhetoric, now w- we are very concerned that much of the race baiting that has been happening in the last few years has been triggered by the government for, as a matter of political political strategy, and it creates a climate that is conducive to ethnic uh, conflict. There is another reason in all of this that we think may play a, may have play may play a role because it certainly does not 
it does the opposite of provide options to people, and that is media denigration of the official opposition. Now, whatever one may say about the DA, they manage margins of a considerable magnitude, the Western Cape in all its respects better than the ANC does, whatever their faults, whatever their inadequacies. So as alternatives go, frankly, looking at it on the ground, given, given its relative size, experience and ability, it is the most viable opposition. And the media just denigrates it for being non-racist, for having, quote, too many whites, close quote, etc., etc. That hasn't helped at all. You know, in in regard to the reality of it is that the government is actually averse to reform. And by this we mean reform that will actually do something positive. And what we're suggesting, as most of people would, is that reform has to be free market, classically liberal. The, 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 the sort of reforms that would reflect a successful Western democratic society. All we're moving towards is tightening, narrowing, um, central power grabbing socialist style policies, which are not only, are not positive reform, but they are positively negative, if I can put it that way. The, we're looking at things like the national health insurance, uh, expropriation without compensation, the restrictions on the uh, equality equality legislation. It, it, it just goes on and on and on. And then, of course, there was the, uh, I don't know how best to describe it, the dismal showing of our president last night on television. Um, first of all, he, he looked strange. He looked very under pressure, but it, it wasn't just tiredness. It, it was stranger than that. And as uh, Franz Cronier says, it was, he gave the impression of being a feeble man who was out of his depth and not really understanding what is happening and, and, and not joining the dots. And I think this is absolutely correct. He repeated himself. He said nothing we didn't already know. Um, the, the, the advice that the Security Council, whatever they call it, is meeting twice a day now to deal with this, get absolutely no confidence whatsoever. Um, and... Th- he, he didn't even, at the very least, he could have really firmly, even almost angrily, denounced the violence and the criminality and said that, that you know, it's, the society is against it. To say that they will, that people will be followed up and prosecuted and the, the authorities will, will sort of do whatever is necessary rings hollow because we know the police are in a very poor shape and they're not being given the equipment they need by their bosses. So the, part of the answer, not all, certainly, but part of the answer to that is Becky Kele must go. He's an absolutely appalling police minister. So this then has lying on top of it, the pandemic and the, the poor man, way in which it has been managed. And of course, the terrible thing about what has happened, it is preventing large numbers of areas not receiving vaccinations, the first or the, or, or the second follow-up vaccination, in whole areas that have been affected by the violence. That has now been put on hold. So, you know, it, it's like if it couldn't get worse, it can get worse and it will get worse. Um, and after my interview slot with my guest, I will look at some of the some of our views on how this will uh, all end or could end. Um, but it's... It, it, it's disturbing, and the sights range from terrifying to actually quite 
funny. Um, and, and I have to say, South Africans and their sense of humor does keep them going on WhatsApp. The memes, the comments, uh, the videos, some of them are, are really, really quite funny. One of, one of mine is watching a young guy walking down the road with a sofa on his head. But it wasn't just confined to sofas, it was, uh, it, it was other things as well, <laughs> including microwaves, etc. But having said that, I'm going to pass us on to the next ad break and we'll follow up then with the interview. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. My guest is a colleague, John Endress. He is the, I was chief of staff, COO of the IRR, all these acronyms. And but at the end of the year, he will be taking over from CEO Franz Cronier, and will John will then become our new CEO. Um, he's a braver man than most in that respect. John, welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Sarah. Uh, good to be on the show again. And I'm not sure if I'm brave or foolhardy, but yes, um, both. I think <laughs> a little bit, a little bit of both. CRT is not a concept that's or an idea that's well understood in this country, or or if to the extent that it's known about, is not well appreciated. How detrimental it could possibly be. Could you give us just an idea of what is CRT, and then we'll look at why it's problematic. Yes, so uh, CRT started out in the United States as an academic field of study in, in, in law, where uh, some legal experts started investigating the extent to which American laws were discriminatory by their nature. And over time, quite a lot of uh, uh, quite a large body of research was uh, generated on this topic on critical race theory. And for a long time, it was mainly academic. But then in recent years, it has gained a lot of traction in uh, the mainstream as well, ordinary life and everyday life of people. And that is why it's become quite an important topic, even though it used to be an academic topic that people thought would be uh, restricted mostly to universities and schools. Um, but it is now gaining a lot of traction. And if I were to give a very short definition of what critical race theory uh, uh, believes it would be that it holds that all black people are the victims of a system designed to keep them oppressed and that all white people act together to maintain that system in order to protect their unearned white privilege. And that is a quote from a website called edonty.org, which we might still get to in a bit more detail later in the show. Yes, we will, because edonty.org, which is educate, don't indoctrinate, is our new website, and we will discuss it and put it forward as a, as a place that you have to go to uh, during the course of the interview. John, talking about blacks being the sort of victims of, of, of white supremacy or white, uh, white um, imperialism or colonialism, it strikes me as a very, it's a very arrogant proposition because, first of all, it, it originated in, in America where Blacks comprise 12% of, 12 to 14% of the population, so they are a distinct minority numerically. Um, and it also harks back to or draws from a history of, which was a dreadful history of slavery in America. Um, isn't it a bit presumptuous to say that blacks, as in blacks globally all over the world and whites globally all over the world are responsible for the state that they're, that they're agitating against? Yeah, you know that. I think the you know, critical race theory does have a, a valid core and a, a point that it has to make, which is that there was great injustice in the world in the past. Uh, injustice still persists in the present. And the question is, what do you do about it? 
Um, and I think, you know, that is a very justified question to ask um, and, a, and a reasonable thing to, to, to work on. You know, you don't want societies to be unjust, for people to be treated unjustly. Um, and what critical race theory does, though, is that it is a collectivist theory in the sense that it uh, divides societies into groups and then assigns certain characteristics to those groups based on their um, characteristics. And it then prescribes or, or tries to describe the situation in which the groups find themselves based on their characteristics and uh, suggests some things that can be done to improve the situation. But those steps are actually quite ra radical. Um, and I think this is what makes critical race theory different compared to, um, say, a more liberal approach to addressing injustice and, uh, and creating progress in societies. And maybe in that context, what I'd like to do is just read out another quote from mm -hmm. um, a book called Critical Race Theory, an Introduction by Delgado and uh, Stefancic, who said that unlike, as there's open quotes, unlike traditional approaches to civil rights, which favor incrementalism and step-by-step -step progress, critical race theory calls into question the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and the neutral principles of constitutional law. And the same book in a, another place also says that critical race theorists are highly suspicious of another liberal mainstay, namely rights, close quotes. And these are sort of really foundational aspects of the society of, of most Western societies. And we would argue um, aspects that were critical to allowing these societies to make the progress which they did. And so if you move away from these principles, these basic principles, and from incrementalism, and think about ways to overthrow the entire system, then you are, are probably intervening uh, in, in the very thing that, that, that allowed the progress that has been made over the past decades to occur. And that is probably not a good idea. Must be a bit uh, harsh or aggressive, but uh, it does raise a question. James Lindsay, who's one of the main critical race theory, says that taken to its logical conclusion, you could be looking at genocide. Do you think he's overstating it? I don't think it will come to that. Um, mm -hmm. But I do think the, the point he's trying to make is that he's drawing parallels which is that um, the philosophies and theories that led to genocide, I think, were very much based on collectives and very much ascribed characteristics to groups based on their demographic identity. Mm. Um, and if you think back, say, to the Third Reich, um, you know, the, the, the Nazis uh, assigned a certain identity to the German Jews um, and made sure that they identified them as subhuman and that was what allowed the genocide to happen. And in this case, what's happening with critical race theory is that it is defining whites as permanent perpetrators and aggressors and blacks effectively as permanent victims. And it sets up a state of conflict between these two groups that um, can uh, take different forms. Uh, and in, in its most extreme form, it, uh, I suppose it could be a genocide or could at least lead to killings. So mm -hmm. I think... Lindsay goes a bit far, maybe, if he says that it might lead to genocide. But I do get the point that he's making, which is that there are parallels between the processes that led to genocides and what we are seeing with critical race theory today. Um, one of the things that's 
really sort of innately disturbing about the idea of critical race theory, although um, it's the, the hierarchy of, of victimhood includes people based on gender issues, um, sexuality, and similar uh, similar identifying um, characteristics. But let's work with the basic of, of black versus white. By making it as sweeping as this, you're essentially saying whites are always guilty, Blacks are always guilty. Um, sorry, blacks are always victims. Whites are always guilty. The children or the descendants of whites who may have committed heinous acts are guilty because they are white. And literally, all everything is determined by what you what you perceive to be the color of somebody else's skin. Um, surely, that is a really dreadful way of determining somebody's qualities, personality, integrity, etc. Yeah, and it's it's uh, abhorrent in a way because what you're doing is that you're removing agency from people, and you are fitting them into little you know categories into boxes from which there really is no escape. Um, and I'm sure that religious listeners will identify amongst these ideas that we're discussing now, this idea of original sin, um, mm. that you are born with sin, um, and that, you know, in, in Christianity, at least, there's a path to salvation. But in critical race theory, there isn't really one. Um, so if you are uh, born white, you're considered to be guilty, and there's no way of absolving yourself of that of that guilt, um, even if you, you know, make the best efforts you can to be a good human being, uh, not to discriminate other, against other people, to be a kind person, to treat others well, uh, you will still be considered. You will still considered still be seen as a person who is white, and therefore, by definition, um, part of the oppressive class of society and part of a system that must be overthrown. It's certainly something that obviously would resonate with the uh, broad listenership of this uh, of this station, because anti-Semitism was really based on the original sin that was eventually pronounced as being, being the original sin that could not in any way be undone except by conversion to Christianity on the part of the Jews. So in that, it, it, it has a, a rather um, creepy resonance, if I could put it that way. One of the things that really worries me, I mean, it's been highly criticized and debated in, in the States and in the UK because of its proliferation, particularly at uh, university level. But the real concern is the entrance of the ideas into schooling, where children are either, you can propagandize very easily because they're very young, or they are not, even though the older may have started, you know, critically thinking themselves, they're not yet in a position to weigh up the quality of arguments and propositions put to them. And this, therefore, is is really, really a huge, huge risk. Yes, um, and as the name critical race theory uh, it says that there's the word critical in there and the word theory and critical theory is uh, uh, an approach to social philosophy that was established in the nine, nine, late 1930s uh, in, in Frankfurt. So there's something called the Frankfurt School. And this was an approach to philosophy and sociology that uh, said that uh, social problems are mostly created and uh, perpetuated by so social structures and cultural assumptions rather than by individuals. Um, and it also argued that ideology was the principal obstacle to human liberation. And so critical theories um, are an academic pursuit in a sense, but they very much also do want to change society. So they try to identify problems in society, and these theories then should be uh, applied and leveraged in order to create changes. And when applied to the uh, schools, what we're seeing now at the moment, uh, there's a field called critical pedagogy, 
which is uh, a critical theory approach to teaching children about the way the world works. And it is very much uh, along these lines. It is a, a type of conflict theory that says that there are different groups in society. Uh, under Marx, it was, say, the proletariat and the, the capitalist bourgeoisie, the exploiters. Under the critical race theory um, paradigm, it is the uh, the whites and the blacks who play those roles. And it is, to me, very troubling when these sorts of um, ideas get taught as truth in schools, uh, especially to young children, because it is more like a form of indoctrination than a form of education. So in other words, I would not advocate for these ideas not to be discussed at all, um, or you know, to be banned from schools. I don't think that would be a good approach. But I do think that when they are discussed, they must be discussed with the appropriate critical distance and to show that that is not the only way to look at the world and not necessarily the right way to look at the world. If, if I sort of sum it up, um, the, really the problem is that people are both being, children are being taught about critical race theory and being taught through critical race theory. So critical race theory is is influencing the way different subjects are approached and how, how teachers deal with them. Um, it, I don't think I see a problem if, if the children were to learn about critical race theory, but in much the same way they should be learning about it's, – it's, 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 a, it's, it's a political idea and they should be learning about capitalism, Marxism, socialism, liberalism, etc. And surely if they went if, – if schools went that route only, parents would not have a problem. I'd, I'd agree with that. Um, I think another parallel can be drawn here perhaps between, say, mission schools um, and, and what's happening in the schools at the moment, which is that missionaries would establish schools um, and teach children sort of the basic elements of reading, writing, arithmetic, but then also use it as an opportunity to you know, inculcate Christianity in children. And I think that that sort of uh, indoctrination into a certain worldview shouldn't be the role of schools. That really should be left to the, the parents to decide how they want their children to grow up in what culture and under what worldview. And that teachers who engage in indoctrinating children are overstepping the mark. Um, that's very much an activist role. It's a political role. And it's not one I think that is appropriate for liberal societies that depend on liberal values for their cohesion and their ability to function. Um, because otherwise, really, the risk is that you create a, a great deal of conflict and polarization that undermines the success of these societies. Can I argue a little bit back, a little bit at this? Um, and that is to say that we do have private schools largely, which are informed or their, their ethos is informed by a uh, religious denomination, whether it be Anglican or Methodist, and in our case, uh, Jewish day schools and 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 yeshivot, isn't it particularly with private schools and not and not and one could argue much more the way you have on 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 public state schools, that parents will choose to send their children to a school that propagates these ideas, or will send them knowing what, that, that that that's what the school does and not minding. Yeah, I'll go along with that, Sarah. Um, and certainly, you know, that, that should be the parents' prerogative to mm. uh, transmit and inculcate the culture, uh, perhaps in which they were brought up and which they want to transmit onto future gener generations in their children, and schools can play a role in that. But where there is a problem is when a worldview gets inculcated without the knowledge of the parents mm. or maybe without the acceptance of the parents. 
So in other words, uh, you know, you might send your, your your kid to a private school, and you're expecting uh, that there won't be um, any any sort of philosophical, religious, um, or, or um, similar kind of indoctrination. But it then creeps in through the back door, and you know, you wake up one morning a couple of years later to find out that your your child has has uh, been educated in a system of thought that you actually don't agree with, and that you didn't want your child, uh, you know, to to be brought up in. And I think that's where then it would really become a problem. I think one of the issues is also that the the language of critical race theory, the uh, the sort of applicable language presented to children is often couched in very social justice terms. So ostensibly parents may be presented with a curriculum change or a policy change and not fully appreciate, not appreciate necessarily fully or at all the fact that this is actually critical race theory that is being taught. And that's probably the biggest problem. This is why parents are only now starting to come to the realization in South Africa and why you've got such a big sort of backlash in America against the teaching of critical race theory. I think that many proponents, um, let, let's say, you know, teachers or, or school governing bodies or parents themselves do come to critical race theories ideas, uh, critical race theory ideas from a good place. You know, they're wanting to mm. make a difference. They're wanting to be, uh, you know, a, a humanist uh, engaging with with their their, their fellow man and, and woman on a on a decent level, and they think it's a good thing. Um, but I think often they don't realize all the baggage that comes with it. Um, for example, one of the tenets of critical race theory is that uh, racism is ordinary. It's the ordinary state of affairs in society, mm. and it is uh, ever it's pervasive everywhere. Um, it's everywhere racism, and it's always racism. And that is sort of quite an extreme point to take. Um, and I think when many parents, let's say, uh, see that their school is, is, is uh, inviting consultants to teach the school body on uh, social justice or critical race theory, they think, well, it's probably pretty good. You know, you, you do want to reduce racial tensions and help people to get along better. It's a very laudable goal. But um, underlying it in this case really is are some some very extreme ideas. Um, you know that that say that people can never get away from racism, no matter whether you're black or white, is always around you. Um, that there's no social interaction between two people of different races that can ever be uh, a normal or you know un, un, unconditional or uh, uh, respectful at the basic human level. It will always be one of of power and one of of uh, unequal relationships and one with a lot of baggage that comes with it. And I think this is not the experience that most people have in South Africa of engaging with their fellow, fellow South Africans. You know, we, 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 we do represent many races. We have many interactions with our, our fellow South Africans. Mostly we get along quite well. Um, and I think we're not all racist all of the time. I should certainly hope we're not. Um, you know, and, and so that's, that, that's where the problem lies, that mm. this is actually an extreme theory presented as being quite reasonable. And yeah. I think that distinction has to be made where, where mm. it departs from being reasonable into into some quite serious terrain. Can I give you a couple of examples that I've, that I've come across in the last few weeks and I'd just be interested in your response to them. One school um, um, has in its, I think it's disciplinary policy, that any any child who uses the term colorblindness or says they are colorblind is committing an, a racist act. Um, another one I've seen which is, 
quite something, is that in one school they have a time set aside where white children are, are placed, have a class with a teacher to examine their white guilt. And part of the thing that they're required to do when this happens is they are required to put down the, any racist thoughts they've had in the past or Colorblindness, it may be a naive idea, but it's certainly not, a, to my mind, a racist idea. The second uh, set of activities is, is truly terrifying. Can I add to that perhaps the fact that this sort of separation and this creation of superiority on the one hand and eternal guilt for the, with the other actually will ensure that race relations either don't happen at all, in other words, people keep their distance, or will be forever fraught. Yeah, it really is a, a kind of a catch-22 situation that, that critical race theory creates. Um, and to, to your first example, the color blindness example, as you said, you know, it's it's an ideal. Um, it's it's the kind of society I think we would like to live in, where the color of your skin really doesn't make a difference to how you interact with other people. And, and where you sort of follow the, the liberal precept that we at the IRR would endorse, that you treat people as people on an individual basis, you know, and if you meet somebody in the street, talk to them, find out who they are. If they're a bad person, then, you know, shun them or, or, or avoid them. Um, and if they're a good person, engage with them. But whether they are black or white or Indian or colored or whatever race really shouldn't make a difference there. And that is the colorblind ideal. It says treat people as individuals, take them as they are, get to know them, and don't judge entire groups um, at once. You know, judge people one by one on their own merits. And I think that's a very fair approach to life. John, in the next couple, just the last couple of minutes, tell us about our website, uh, Educate, Don't Indoctrinate. Uh, we were approached by concerned parents who I think increasingly were seeing critical race theory-related ideas being brought into the schools. Uh, interestingly, mostly at very elite schools, uh, the top schools in South Africa uh, seem to be experiencing this far more than any other schools, which is ironic in the sense that at these schools, of course, you often have the uh, children of the most prominent members of South African society, both black and white, who are... Uh, essentially all privileged. Um, if they come from a poor background, they'll be there because of a bursary or scholarship, which has helped them. Um, but usually they come from, from wealthy families, prominent families, and so on. And to bring this philosophy of victimhood and uh, of victims and oppressors into that kind of environment, you would think would be uh, destined to fail, uh, but I think it isn't because the uh, sort of critical race consultants make sure that they build their business by pointing out the ever-present, the everywhere racism that critical race theory postulates exists in societies. And these schools seem to be remarkably receptive to those messages. That is what the website edonti.org, Educate, Don't Indoctrinate, was designed to combat. It's an information resource for parents where they can find out what critical race theory is. There's a very short answer, a short answer, and then quite a long answer. You can uh, find out as much as you like about it on the website. <laughs> and uh, you'll also find some suggestions on what you can do if you find that your school is dabbling in critical race theory. You know, what are the warning signs and what actions can you take as a parent? So it is a, a very comprehensive website, but I think also very well structured. It's easy to, to get to the content and, and understand the ideas that are described.
I agree with you. Um, I, th- I think it really is a nicely put together website because it is, it is accessible and you can read more or less complex, sorry, more or less complex articles or what, or videos at your, at your, at your choice, at your leisure, which we keep, we, we will keep updating. Uh, the site, www.edonti.org is up, um, as is our Facebook page. And which, of course, because it's social media, I've completely forgotten the the uh, the, 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 the go-to uh, uh, sites for that. But uh, I'll, I'll I'll present it uh, uh, later on today. And uh, John, I'd like to thank you very very much for coming on and elucidating what is a very tricky, controversial topic. Super. Thank you very much for having me, Sarah. IFM one hundred and one point nine megahertz of life. Well, as I said, having fumbled all over the the details for Facebook and uh, Twitter, the Facebook page you the type in educate don't indoctrinate will take you to the site the full the full typing in of that, and on Twitter we are at and all capitals R I P underscore C R T at capitals I R I P underscore C R T rip rest in peace critical race theory um so that <laughs> yes um to get back to the tail end of the discussion on where we see this uh, uh, violence and looting going we think it's very much tied to the similar events that happened when we've had xenophobic programs in south africa um over the last decade and they've usually resulted in high loss of life and severe economic disruption, which obviously the same the same consequence could happen here. Um, the second is that, uh, and not impossible, the security forces shoot to shoot and kill a number of protesters, and that could send set off a national uprising against government. Uh, essentially, it would be, I guess, a sort of Americana on steroids. And given the fact that the police are under-resourced with uh, riot equipment, uh, uh, stun grenades and rubber bullets, I dread the thought that we might end up seeing live ammunition being used. Um, we do think that in the next 10 days or so that the calm will, will, will return, uh, but really in the longer term, unless there is real reform and, and competence uh, instilled in government or replaces government, uh, the, there will be many more cycles of violent eruptions. And it is only higher levels of economic growth, which can only be spurred on by liberal uh, policies that will prevent the pattern from being repeated over and over again. And each time with greater intensity uh, until it sweeps the ANC out of power. One of the very real tragedies of this whole set of events is that the businesses that have been destroyed, some may reopen, some may be insurance payouts for, to, to enable them to reopen. But I think for some people, particularly having to deal with running a business in a pandemic, they will close and they will not reopen. But certainly in in areas hard hit by what's happened, there's going to be nothing for people to buy for the next while. Shops are either empty or they're going to be closed in anticipation of being of being attacked. So having looted the stores, if people need stuff, 
they may will not be able to uh, to get it. We see it as a kind of um, you know the, it, it, again it's one of those things about uh, uh, hating to be right. Um, the very fact that there were blatant COVID breaches uh, at uh, at Nkandla before Zuma's arrest uh, and the failure to do anything about that meant that people knew that the police were not in control and the authority of the courts could be well undermined and we'll see what happens in the court judgment coming out of yesterday's argument by Zuma in the constitutional court to have his his, uh, his, his jailing uh, rescinded um, I wonder whether they'll they need to they need to keep face and not rescind the judgment. Maybe they'll reconsider the punishment, but theoretically they shouldn't be doing either, not in not in strict legal terms. Um, the the police will have to be better armed and 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 trained. And I I don't know whether we'll see that from the police as much as we will see it from the private security industry, who is. Uh, by and large, much, much, much better trained and much better resourced and might have to be relied on. I think what it may well do is the whole notion of the amendment to the firearms bill that is currently trying to make its way towards conclusion, where clearly essentially wants to disarm private citizens completely, and particularly they may not be armed for self-defense if you've ever, ever heard anything so ludicrous. And I'm not a, a big pro-gun person, but you know, this, this just doesn't make sense. This, all this, all of this is happening might um, actually put a paid to that proposed legislation. So, the it is um, it is a, it is a question of kind of wait and see at this stage, and uh, we're just you know really put, we as private citizens, without going Ill, uh, violent and illegal routes need to keep putting pressure on the government and challenging their legislation, criticizing them, writing letters, writing articles. It all helps because it, 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 you want to create the sense to the government that they are not fit for purpose. I know that may be a very strong way of putting it, but frankly, I don't think we've seen much that's fit for purpose. Until next Tuesday, keep up to date with dailyfriend.co.za and we'll see you a bit warmer then.